0: This audio production is brought to you by TheBestDayEver.com, David Wolf's
1: premium longevity member site.
0: The content found on TheBestDayEver.com from David Wolf and New Horizon Health, Inc. is for informational purposes only and is in no way intended as medical advice, as a substitute for medical counseling, or as treatment cure for any disease or health condition, and nor should it be construed as such because that would be illegal. Always work with a qualified health professional before making any changes to your diet, supplement use, prescription drug use, lifestyle, or exercise activities. Please understand that you assume all risks from the use, non-use, or misuse of this information. Greetings, everybody. This is David Avocado-Wolf, and I am joined today by Dr. Sarah Gottfried, and she's going to be joining me at the Women's Wellness Conference, which is coming up Friday, February 15th, through Sunday, February seventeenth, 2013, at the Orange County Hilton in Costa Mesa, California. We're offering a special deal right now where you can bring a friend for an additional $42. So if you've got a ticket, you want to bring a friend, you can do that for $42. You've got to register now to do that, and uh, Dr. Gottfried and I will see you there. Sarah Gottfried is an MD, and she's a physician, author, writer. She's a yogini. Um, She's got a new book coming out called The Hormone Cure. I think she's right on the pulse of what's happening out there, and she's right on the pulse of our new understanding about the importance of hormones and their effect on health. So we're going to jump right into this. How are you doing, Dr. Gottfried?
1: I'm so good. I'm thrilled to be with you today, David, and with your listeners. Hooray.
0: Perfect. Okay, Dr. Sarah, let's let's jump right into it. Women today are suffering from a lack of sleep, mood disorders, low sex drive, lack of energy, problems with metabolism. I'd love to hear your take on the underlying causes of this phenomenon.
1: Well, I'd say you and I are on the same page with this. I really believe that the main reason why women are struggling, why they're feeling like they're tapped out, but they're cranky, they'd rather be on Facebook than have sex, is because of hormonal imbalances. And the interesting part to me is that people start to fall down this hormonal flight of stairs in their 30s. And many think that, you know, it's just that they're getting older. They're not aware that there are these hormones that are just crucial drivers of how we rock our mission. What I think is so important is to manage your hormones with the same kind of precision and love that you manage the rest of your life. You know, whether that's, how you want the arc of your life to look, whether it's your 401k or, you know, whatever you're into that you like to track, we want to do that with our hormones, especially certain hormones in particular that I I think are the most likely to start to work against us starting in our 30s. And I like to keep those astonishingly simple, at least to start with. And those three hormones that I think are so important, I call Charlie's Angels, and they are your estrogens, your cortisol, and your thyroid. So that's, that's kind of how I think about that problem that you described at the beginning of, you know, kind of the life of the modern woman.
0: That body of research is indicating that progesterone deficiency is a major problem in all of it because the progesterone opposes the cortisol it opposes the estrogen it opposes the lack of um, thyroid hormones like when women have low thyroid it's usually low progesterone too so how do you how do you integrate progesterone into all this
1: well progesterone is in this really important tango with the other hormones as you mentioned and i think it's that crosstalk that is so fascinating because You're absolutely right. I mean, just taking the estrogens to begin with, and maybe we could start off with estradiol, which I also abbreviate as E2. We want to have this tango between estradiol and progesterone so that you've got exactly the right balance between the two of them and one partner is not falling behind, one partner is not leading. You know, the, the most common problem that I see in women in my practice especially starting around 35, is estrogen dominance. And it links to what you just described, that that issue of progesterone deficiency. And we used to think, I'm sure many of your listeners know this, we used to think that a lot of the problems that women face in perimenopause, everything from the sleep issues to not wanting to have sex to having hot flashes and night sweats, we used to think it was related to estrogen. And it turns out that it's more an issue of progesterone deficiency, at least in the first phase of perimenopause. Then estrogen starts to get more in the act. But you're absolutely right that progesterone is a really important uh, kind of horizontal here when it comes to the other hormones. When I think about the stress response and this bigger family of hormones that are known as the glucocorticoids, you know, these hormones that raise Your blood sugar and raise your blood pressure and they're released when you're stressed out. I don't think, I don't think about progesterone and cortisol as being kind of equal players because cortisol tends to sort of steamroll progesterone. So for instance, if you are stressed out and overwhelmed and your cortisol level is high, it will block your progesterone receptors. So it makes it really hard to have that kind of dance happening in your body between the estrogen and progesterone, between estradiol and progesterone if you have really high cortisol, for instance. And then we can also talk about the thyroid, but I I just wanted to kind of fill in that piece, at least the way I look at it, with how progesterone fits in with those Charlie's Angels.
0: Do you agree with the, with the idea that if the hormones are all inverted, let's say a woman, she's 40, she has estrogen dominance, high cortisol, low progesterone, moderate to high testosterone, do you do you feel that that kind of, no matter what the person eats, it kind of, they're still kind of like Sisyphus pushing that boulder up a hill, they make any mistake, it kind of rolls back on them, do you feel like that's what's going on when... You know, let's say a woman's 40 and she has that kind of hormone profile and she's trying to do all the right things with her diet, but it's not working.
1: I love this, this hypothetical 40 year old because, oh my gosh, my practice is full of them. And I've been there myself, so I, I really appreciate that Sisyphus picture that you just painted. I think it hugely matters what she eats. Hugely matters. And I know you have a lot to say about this. I have a few places where I really think we've got, Great studies, great randomized trials, the best evidence showing that in that woman with the estrogen dominance, the high cortisol, the moderate to high testosterone, she often is eating and drinking exactly the wrong things. You know, just like she'll go to her doctor and be offered an antidepressant, which I think is exactly the wrong thing to treat her underlying problems. When it comes to food, often what she's doing is she's having a glass or two or three of wine every night or cocktails. And we know that alcohol raises your cortisol level. So she's starting out with high cortisol. She thinks that it's going to give her some relaxation to have a glass or two of wine. And it's actually doing the reverse. It's making it worse. It's robbing her of that peace that she's seeking. So yes, I would say food and Drink is really important here. We know that if she eats a low glycemic index diet, for instance, and cuts out the refined carbohydrates, she's able to cut her testosterone by about 20%. And that can make a big difference, especially if you're trying to get pregnant and you put the story together with polycystic ovarian syndrome. So I I totally am on the sitting page with you in terms of Using food as a way of leveraging your genes and also balancing your hormones.
0: Doesn't it doesn't it seem like if somebody gets their hormones in the right ratio and the kind of the right um, you know golden mean section of that bell curve, that the, just the food works better? I, oh, you yeah. You feel that that's really true? That everything just works better and it's just easier. And while we're on that, why you brought up the whole idea of polycystic? ovaries, and and obviously that brings up the idea of polycystic breast disease. What's the role? I want to hear this from a Dr. MD, Harvard-trained, and by the way, Dr. Sarah is Harvard, MIT-trained physician and scientist. What is the deal with iodine? Because I feel like iodine has been massively suppressed because it's so cheap and is universally useful and available and um, has a very powerful effect on, on polycystic um, breast disease and probably polycystic ovaries as well. What's your feeling on that?
1: Well, there's so many juicy questions you asked there. Can I take on the one with the golden mean and how the food interacts with the body, the matrix of the body first, and then we'll come back to iodine? Sure, yeah. Okay. <laughs> They're both that so sounds- good. So I, I love that you asked about that. I'm a big fan of really helping women become aware of how to get the right ratios, how to manage that dashboard so that their neurohormonal picture is really supporting the way that they want to be of service. And when you've got the right ratios, when you've got cortisol, for instance, in that Goldilocks position of not too high, not too low, right where you want it, it does make everything else so much easier. You know, a lot of people feel like balancing their hormones is a really big project. And it turns out that once you start to make that turn, once you've got the ratios and the Goldilocks position with these hormones, everything else is easier. In fact, it's so much easier to get out of hormone imbalance than it is to live with the misery of it. So I wanted to emphasize that. And one point in particular, you were talking about how food is really able to serve you even better. Once you've got those ratios figured out, and you're in your sweet spot with these hormones. And there is really rigorous data to support that, David, because we know that if your cortisol is way too high, for instance, you're much more likely to have autoimmune problems, and that can lead to things like, oh, thyroid issues, right? And then iodine becomes even more of an issue. And it also just makes it hard for your gut to absorb what it needs to be absorbing and extracting from the food that you're eating. Don't you find that as well?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, I feel like what's happening is is that we've got, I think there's a lot of estrogenic pressure and carcinogenic pressure on our system that comes in from our toxicity of our environment, and it's, it's imbalancing our hormonal system. The stress then adds on top of that, then we've got a huge amount of phytoestrogens in the diet that we don't know what the effects of are long term, like soy, isoplavones, for example. And then when you put that whole picture together, you start seeing that, okay, if we don't get this, this Goldilocks dashboard of our hormones into the right ratios in the right areas, then it's, the food is, is just going to bounce. It's not really going to work as well.
1: Yeah, I like that visual of it bouncing. I mean, and we know this from, looking at just the small intestine, for instance, you know, this little part of your gut that is supposed to be keeping the bad boys out and absorbing the good nutrients that you want, you totally get that bounce if you're not able to have the right hormones to really support that process. And I think you're right. I love what you just said about kind of the phytoestrogen smog and the endocrine disruptors that we come across every day. And It's then compounded by the stress that we have to manage. When you have all of those things working against you, it makes it really hard to interact with your environment in a favorable way. You know, there's parts of the gut where it's only one cell layer between you and the environment, and your food is crucial information. It's crucial information for your DNA. We know this from the gene environment, interaction, the whole field of epigenetics, and it's also, you know, it's it's the fuel. It's the fuel that fires our ability to rock our mission. So I really believe in that. You asked about iodine and I, I love the iodine story because it's, it's really a complex, rich story. And I think that as with what we we're just talking about with cortisol and some of these ratios where you want to find that Goldilocks position, it's similar with iodine. Like you don't want to be on the extremes. You don't want super high levels of iodine. You also don't want to be iodine deficient because that worldwide is the number one reason for low thyroid function. It also makes your IQ drop. And so we want to find, you know, what's the right amount for people who are trying to step into that place of knowledge and power and choices and really understand how to balance their hormones naturally. But I'm curious about your take, too, on iodine. I mean, the the other issue that I think is important is for people who have autoimmune thyroid problems, like what's called Hashimoto's, or Hashis for short, they often don't do well, at least with supplemental iodine. But I do think it's so important that we get it from food sources, because that has been shown to be safe and Relatively free of any adverse effects. That's my take on the literature. What about you, David? What would you yeah. say about? Yeah, well,
0: that? I agree with that. I definitely agree with that. I think with somebody has an autoimmune thyroid condition, you can't just they just can't take thyroid. They can't take iodine. Another situation that's like that is when somebody's allergic to iodine. That happens. I've seen that. So you know, there are, it, iodine isn't the the panacea for everybody. But there is something about iodine that fits into what I learned in. In chemistry class in ninth grade, which is this whole idea that iodine is a halogen. It's the queen of the halogens. And we have a huge amount of of halogen toxicity in our environment. And we've got to have enough iodine to out-compete the other halogens. For example, chlorinated water, fluoridated water, bromine in chemtrails. You know, ethylene dibromide is the number one ingredient in chemtrails um then there's then radioactive iodine so we we want to have enough iodine to outcompete those other um halogens to to absorb into our endocrine system so that's an aspect of it that i've really arrived at that conclusion and feel like for me at this point i take iodine almost daily because of those those issues you know if i'm traveling around i'm in a hotel i'm in the suddenly chlorinated water it's like you absorb that it goes right into you do you do you agree with that i mean You are Harvard-trained and MIT-trained. I'd love to hear your take on that.
1: (laughs) Well, my approach to that, David, always is to start with the data. You know, what do we know when it comes to the halogens, for instance? And I love the way you talk. I love I love the idea of iodine as the queen of the halogens. I haven't thought about that before. It totally just, like, makes me do the happy dance. But when it comes to data, you know, we've got robust data, for instance, on the whole story of, bromine and bromides and how they were used in breads. You know, I think of most commercially available breads as being abusive, at least to the female body and also, you know, to all of us. And I think if we look at something like fibrocystic breast change and how women develop these painful changes in their breasts, I definitely think that iodine is part of that story. I think there's other xenoestrogens, endocrine disruptors that are part of that story, thyroid, vitamin D. There's so many different elements that are involved as well as just, you know, kind of garden variety estrogen dominance. So I think there's many different parts to it, but you're right that the iodine piece is a very important one and it's one that tends to get neglected, certainly by conventional medicine.
0: Yeah, The USDA recommendation for iodine is... It's seemingly absurdly low. I mean I think just right off the top of my head, the kind of dosage that I'm talking about that my research indicates is similar to what Dr. Brownstein puts in his book Iodine, which is about thirteen to fifteen milligrams of iodine for a healthy adult um, who doesn't have sensitivities to iodine, who doesn't have Hashimoto's, who doesn't have the autoimmune condition of of the thyroid. Um, which is that's a hundred times greater than the USDA. What's your what's your feeling about that? I mean It seems like the USDA is at an absurdly low level for the current configuration of what we're dealing with today.
1: Well, I would agree that the USDA has had absurdly low standards, not just for iodine, but for many, many, many different nutrients (laughs) that are crucial. And when it comes to the iodine story, one thing I can tell you is that I think we're exposed to radiation and other harmful effects from the environment, and that iodine is an important part of protecting yourself. So I think it it plays this really important protective role, but I can also tell you after taking care of patients for the past 20 years that there are a lot of women who can't tolerate, even without those exceptions that you described, like an iodine allergy or having Hashimoto's, autoimmune thyroiditis, they can't tolerate taking 13 to 15 milligrams a day because it gives them heart palpitations or they have some other issue that comes up for them. But I am a big fan of getting iodine from food sources. I think that's a, a really valuable, important way to get it. And if you don't know, you know, this is kind of my mantra that you're starting to hear over and over again, if you don't know, then I think it's important to test yourself. You can do a test that you can order on the Internet where you measure your level of iodine before and after putting some iodine in your body. And that is a very wise way to assess, you know, how deficient are you in iodine? What's the story for you? Because we know that the era of one-size-fits-all medicine is over. Praise the Lord. So glad it's over. (laughs) Hallelujah. Hallelujah.
0: Wow. And, and also so, one-size-fits-all nutrition, that's also over. That Thank God that got dubbed in the Aspen of history.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, we're in this place of personalized nutrition, personalized medicine. How do you really, you know, not just longevity for longevity's sake, but how do you look totally hot, feel happy, and be in that place of radical health as you get older, in your 90s and age 100 plus?
0: Also, now look—you have brought up a very interesting part of this. We started to creep into this idea of like food, right? Like iodine-carrying foods, which would be obviously kelp and seaweeds, and then other—there may be other ones that you have in mind that I don't know about. But let's talk a little bit about food and how it fits into this healthy hormone picture that we're we're painting here. what What are your favorites? What do you think are the big foods for women? Um, I've heard you talk about beet before. What else comes to mind?
1: Mm -hmm. Well, I'm a big fan of beets for managing your estrogen part of your dashboard and beet greens as well. I think all of us need to be eating greens every day. I mean, there's no downside to it. Even if you get 100 nutritionists on a stage and you ask them about greens, nobody is going to be opposed to it, right? I mean, that's like one thing we can all agree on. And I, you know, for so many women that I take care of, I find that they're deficient in iron, usually because they're estrogen dominant, their period's a little too heavy. And I'm a big fan of greens every day as a way of helping manage the amount of ferritin and iron that you have in your body. So that's an important one. It also, I think, is really crucial for pH balance. We talked about alcohol. I'm going to give some do's and don'ts here. We know from a really powerful study last year that women who have three to six servings of alcohol per week or more have more bad estrogens and also an increased risk of breast cancer. So that's one of those things that you want to manage. Fiber. Let me, just ask, let
0: me ask you something about the alcohol real quick because it came up a couple times in my mind. Real quick, natural aromatase inhibition of resveratrol, delivery system of resveratrol seemingly being the best in alcohol because it only has a three and a half hour shelf life in your body, meaning it's got to get to the receptor site in your cells within three and a half hours. What's your comment on that? Because that should seemingly lower or help to oppose estrogens by being an um, aromatase inhibitor.
1: Well, you're right about resveratrol being helpful for estrogen balance and also the delivery. But I think it's a problem of volume, David, that if you want to get enough resveratrol to really help you with up-leveling your estrogen and getting rid of the bad estrogens, you know, making enough of the good protective estrogens, alcohol for women of a certain age is usually not the best choice. Because it affects a number of different things, it also affects the quality of deep restorative sleep, which you know is so important for having that full adrenal conversation every night, so that you really have that growth and repair that needs to happen. So that's my take. I mean, I, I really think okay. if you want to use resveratrol in a medicinal way, I would rather that you take a combination of, you know, maybe somewhere less than four servings of alcohol per week plus a supplement, a potent supplement.
0: And I think what you're going to get onto here is the way that the fiber pulls out these estrogen metabolites out of our system. Is that kind of what you're going to hit that?
1: That's exactly right. And the other, you know, it has an effect on this enzyme that is your friend. Well, I'll talk about a couple different aspects of fiber, but let me first say that We know, at least in the United States, that women get a tiny amount of fiber. They get a fraction of what they should be getting. We know that most of us will do our best with estrogen in particular if we get around 40 to 50 grams of fiber per day. And that's a pretty hefty amount of fiber, right?
0: That is. That's a lot.
1: It's a lot. most women in the U.S., the average fiber consumption is about 14 grams per day. So we're getting like less than a third of what we should be getting and that's causing a lot of harm. I mean, even women who are pretty enlightened and really careful about how much fiber they're getting, when they actually calculate over a three-day period how much they're getting, often I find that they're somewhere around 20, 25 grams per day. They're still just, you know, quite a bit short of where they should be. So fiber is a really important one. It has a major influence on the kind of bacteria that you're loving up in your gut versus the, the less supportive, less helpful bacteria. It affects this thing called beta-glucuronidase, and it can really affect your ability to use and then lose your estrogens. So what we want is we want to be able to use estrogen for, you know, kind of the purpose in the body. It's it's this, like, archetypal hormone of femininity. We want to use it, and then we want to poop it out and pee it out. But unfortunately, most of us have estrogen hanging out in our body for way too long. Don't you agree with that, David? I know I've heard you talk about this before.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, I think what, I, I mean, my feeling is, is that when we're dealing with age-related toxicity of the liver, Estrogen metabolites are a big part of it. That's it. It's real. That's why I think beets are so critical. Is beet juice and and other methylators are able to move the estrogen along through the detoxification pathways. But then what you're getting at is this really the secondary piece, which is then you've got to be able to draw it out with the fiber. And I think those two steps are really critical pieces of this. um, You know this this thing about hormones, diet, and and longevity.
1: I agree. I totally agree. and I, I think you're as old as your liver. I'm glad that you raised this issue of the liver because the liver is so important, as many of our listeners know today. and i I just think we're at this place now where we used to have you know kind of those bell-shaped curves of how we looked at liver function. You know, we wanted your liver enzymes to be within a particular range, and if they were, we call you normal. But there's this whole new literature developing, especially around women, showing that when your liver enzymes are above a certain level that used to be considered normal, it can cause a lot of harm in terms of exactly what you're describing, you know, being able to get rid methylate, get rid of these biochemically active, chem- these, these species that we want to get out of the body. We want to, you know, have this this biochemistry happen and then we want to, like, get rid of it. You know, sort of get the magic out of it and then say goodbye.
0: Yeah, yep.
1: And I think methylation is so important. I think we're just, like, barely hitting the tip of the iceberg about the importance of methylation. It's such a gigantic part of this new emphasis that we have on epigenetics and really understanding how your genes are not a life sen- sentence, they're not, you know, determinism, they're more like a probability field, right, where you can influence the way that your DNA is expressed by 50 to 80%. And I think that's a sacred opportunity that we all need to be thinking about and taking advantage of.
0: That's, I, I like the way you said that. I mean, I really feel like all nutrition, medicine, all healing is coming down to stacking the odds in your favor. Is working with the fundamental pretext of all of reality, which is probability field so I really like the way you said that I think that's a really important idea because there's a lot of there's a lot of black and white in the healing field it's like this is bad that's good you can't do this you have to do that that's terrible do this instead it's like this black and white kind of talk and it's like actually you need to look at every choice you make and really analyze is like okay is this Exactly, the odds in my favor is this helping move me towards the goal where I want to go, or not? It's more of that kind of of conversation. And and on that, I want to just because you're you're great, by the way, um, Doctor Sir. I want to, I want you to just kind of just for our listeners because there's a lot of people thinking about this right now, listening. His thyroid. I want to hear your take on what is the epidemic of thyroid problems all about? What do you think's behind it? And uh, and where would we go with it? And then then you could just dive right into your book. I want to hear about what's going to be coming out in your book and what you're going to tell us at the Women's Wellness Conference.
1: Mm. Yeah, well, I'm a big fan of of the thyroid and I could, I could talk about it for hours and hours, but let me just give you a couple of things that I think are so important about the thyroid. We know right now, David, that one in four women in the U.S. is taking a drug for mental health. That's across the board. Wow. And we also know for women between the ages of 40 and 59, that more than one in four of them are taking a drug that uh, is acting as an antidepressant. So that one in four across the board is for women who are taking anxiety medication, sleeping pills, but this is especially an issue for women who are 40 to 59. We know that at least 20% of those women 40 plus are in thyropause. They have a problem with their thyroid. It seems to have come on along the time of perimenopause and often they don't know it because their physicians are using an old reference range for what's normal when it comes to their thyroid function. So you asked why this is happening. You've noticed as well that more and more people are struggling with thyroid issues and I think it's, I think there's a lot of reasons for it. The one that is maybe the most alarming to me is thyroid disruptors. You know, many of us have learned a ton about endocrine disruptors, especially xenoestrogens. We know that there's more than 700 that have been identified in the environment. And when it comes to the thyroid, it just blows my mind that we are so exposed to thyroid disruptors and many people don't know it. I mean, often it's your your living room couch or your mattress that is the worst player because it's full of flame retardants. So just taking flame retardants, it disturbs your thyroid at 12 different places in the biochemical process that it needs to support you. And I feel like, I mean, I don't want to get on a total soapbox here, but we know that when it comes to Corporations that make these chemicals that we get exposed to, the way that they are regulated and the way that they have to prove safety is completely different from, for instance, the way the FDA works. And I'm not defending the FDA, but I just I just want to make this point that I'm really concerned about thyroid disruptor exposure. So that's one of the ways I look at the thyroid. I really think that Women need to, to sort of take this information about optimal thyroid ranges, for instance, and, you know, kind of the list of symptoms that are most common for women who struggle with their thyroid, which are kind of this triad of weight gain, fatigue, and mood issues.
0: And And, and what about, what about body temperature issues?
1: Oh my gosh. Well, the list is very long, right? So cold hands, cold feet, having a low body temperature at certain points during the day, constipation, hair loss, thyroid hair, where your hair gets very straw-like and tingles easily. There's so many different symptoms that kind of track with your thyroid not working well. But I I think it's important to make this one point. You know, if, if your listeners don't take anything else away... When you go to a conventional physician and they offer you the latest antidepressant and you maybe feel unsure about it, I'm so glad you feel unsure. I really want you to step into that power of saying, you know what? Couldn't this be a hormone imbalance? So that's one really important point. It's not that all antidepressants are bad. They are life-saving if you have severe depression, for instance. But there's data, again, from last year showing that it increases the risk of breast and ovarian cancer to be on an antidepressant. You know, the list of all the problems that it causes from hijacking your sex drive and taking orgasm from you is long and legion, but I just think it's important that we're really careful about the pharmaceutical industry and how it tends to mask symptoms rather than address the root cause. And so that that maybe is a good... Segue for my book because my book is really about number one, what is the root cause of the symptoms that you're having? And then number two, how are we going to fix this? And I developed a three step protocol for how to do that.
0: Okay, yay. So your book's coming out in March. And I imagine by the time we get to the Women's Wellness Conference, and for everybody listening, Women's Wellness Conference is Friday, February 15th through Sunday, February 17th at the Orange County Hilton in Costa Mesa, California coming up here in the new year, 2013. Um, and again, we're offering a special deal. You can bring a friend for only $42. We're going to have a great event there. But I think it's going to be pretty closely timed here, Dr. Sarah, so that you're actually going to be able to kind of give us the whole download of your book at that event. How's that looking?
1: It is looking that way. I'm super excited about it. I, I just am thrilled about your, your uh, Women's Wellness Conference. And, yeah, the idea is to really focus on not falling down that hormonal flight of stairs. So how is it that we move forward together to, to really work on your neurohormonal dashboard and get these hormones working for you, not against you. I mentioned the estrogens, cortisol, and thyroid, but we're looking much more broadly here, including growth hormone and some of this, the new data that we have on cortisol resistance, how to prevent that, how to prevent progesterone resistance, which is the latest thinking behind PMS, premenstrual syndrome. So yeah, the whole idea with my talk there will be to have women leave my talk with an ability to, to work on this dashboard and really understand how these pieces fit together and have an action plan. That's really important to me.
0: At the event, are you going to have some way of um, women getting tested, for example? Like, I'm sure, what do you do? Do you do capillary testing? Do you do saliva testing? What's your modus operandi for picking up on the hormones, for example, in, in your um, you know, on that dashboard? How do, you, how do you get those numbers?
1: Well, David, it depends on the information that you want to get. So I often will start out with blood testing. I'll start out with serum testing because... That's the language that allows me to speak to other clinicians, especially clinicians who are not quite in the same groove as you and I are in. And so I often start with serum testing. That's where I'll do cortisol, DHEA. I'll do a day 21 progesterone or 22 and someone who's still cycling. I'll look at thyroid. You know, I'm a big fan of not just TSH and free T4, but what is the ratio of free T3 to reverse T3? That's really right. interesting to me. Yep. And if, you know, I often will do serum testing as kind of a screening test. If it doesn't fit with the rest of the story, then I will often move on to salivary testing. I think that's super helpful when it comes to looking at cortisol at different points during the day and also looking at the tango between progesterone and estradiol. You want that ratio to be about 300 for you to feel your best. And then I sometimes will do 24-hour urine. So that may be a longer answer than you were looking for. But 24-hour urine gives us a ton of information. We know that all of these hormones operate on a circadian rhythm. So sometimes when you need to go a little deeper, I find that 24-hour urine testing is really helpful, especially to get some of those ratios. I'm like the biggest fan of ratios. Or maybe you are, David. We'll have to see who wins a, that race. I've become a big fan <laughs> from
0: the practice that I've been talking to. You know, like the iron to copper ratio, how important that is. I mean, I've gotten all kinds of ratios. The magnesium to calcium ratio. The silica ratios, like how much silica you've got as compared to magnesium. Um, the calcium phosphorus ratio. I, so I'm a big fan. It's, I think you're right. I think there's something to be said in all of nutrition and healing about ratios. Um, again, I, that probably has something to do with probability fields. But when you get the ratio of, of two big numbers, let's say it's the copper-iron ratio, it can really tell you a lot. I mean, my friends who do hair analysis up in Canada, they found out when somebody's hair hits like 600 parts per million iron, they're pretty much a goner. They know. They can see it, you know, like, oh, this person's in trouble, like they have a cancer or, you know, very aggressive black formation in the cardiovascular system or something. And I found that to be very interesting. But they can live longer if their copper is higher. If their copper is low, it's over.
1: Yeah, and I I think that's where we're heading to this more nuanced way of looking at these different nutrients and hormones and neurotransmitters, you know, not just one in isolation, but what is the relationship? It all comes back to relationship, right, David? (laughs) Yeah,
0: right on. Now, you you are obviously, because you're such a a skilled scientist, but you're also just, I I, I love talking to you, I'm just going to ask you this before I let you go you're also dealing with real people and real lives. And, and how do you integrate that as a physician to really be able to touch people in a way that matters in a way that is going to help them create change, but at the same time, you know, you have to work with the science and be like, hey, you know, these are the things you've got to do in order to get these numbers in the Goldilocks position, as you so eloquently said.
1: Mm. Well, that's a great question. And I, to me, the answer is pretty simple. It's that you meet people where they are. You know, I went to a meeting at my daughter's school this morning with my soaked chia seeds in a glass container and my hemp seeds kind of mixed in and some blueberries and a chopped persimmon. And there the chia seeds were on top. And people look at my food and they're just like, you are a freak, right? Like, are you from Mars? And I have lots of people in my practice who... They do not want to have chia seeds on the food plan that I write out. And I totally respect that. So to me, the point is that we really meet people where they are. I see a lot of very empowered women, but many of them, if I start to talk about yoga, they roll their eyes. You know, that's just like the last thing they want to do. And then I'll mention orgasmic meditation and they get all excited. So it's the whole point to me with trying to find that middle place, between the rigor of the science and kind of real life, real people is to figure out where they are and how to meet them there. Cool.
0: That sounds awesome. Well, I want to thank you, Dr. Sarah. You've been great. And we could go on. I mean, geez, I can't wait to speak to you when I see you at the the Women's Wellness Conference. And Thank you so much for your time.
1: Yes. yes, I I love being on the line with you, as you know. And I I'm going to start making my list of ratios. I'm going to compare them to you. Compare okay, them cool. when I see you.
0: <laughs> we'll, we'll compare notes. Um, for everybody listening, I've been I've been talking to Dr. Sarah Gottfried. She's an incredible physician. I think you're you're operating out of Berkeley, California. Is that right, Doctor Doctor Sarah?
1: That's right. That's where my practice is.
0: And so, if you're in that area, you can come down and see Dr. Sarah at a Women's Wellness Conference, or if you're going to be at the conference, you may live in the Bay Area, you may want to add Dr. Sarah to your list of great physicians that can help support your longevity. We're going to be hosting that Women's Wellness Conference on Friday, February fifteenth, 2013, coming up here, um, all the way through Sunday, February seventeenth, at the Orange County Hilton in Costa Mesa, California. We do, again, have a special deal right now where you can bring a friend for only an additional $42.00. We'll see you there. Dr. Sarah and I are wishing you both, wishing you all, the best day ever.
1: My pleasure. Thanks so much, David. Thanks, everybody. This program was brought to you by TheBestDayEver.com. Thanks for listening.